0: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Brinkinridge weekdays twelve thirty to three seven seventy CHQR.
1: Well, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program, Rob breakenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. So five o'clock today, we're going to hear from Premier Kenny, the Health Minister, the Chief Medical Officer of Health, an update on a few fronts, uh, the state of COVID restrictions heading into the Christmas break. The availability of rapid tests sounds like we're going to make rapid tests available for free via pharmacies, which is probably a smart move. And perhaps we'll find out a bit more about just how aggressive we're going to be in trying to get booster doses out, third doses out. And I think Alberta's led on this front amongst provinces, but I think clearly we got to do more because uh, we got a big problem coming our way. Now, as I mentioned before, the top of the hour, we, we got a lot of information Uh, to digest today uh, about the threat posed by Omicron. And we certainly already know it is more transmissible, and much of that is likely due to its immune escape properties. Uh, Things continue to surge in South Africa. I know there's some hope maybe that things might have been plateauing, but my God, they're still at a 34% positive rate in South Africa. And we're seeing cases surge elsewhere we got some encouraging news today regarding uh, vaccines, regarding uh, Pfizer's uh, new antiviral pill. So, look, we, we got some tools at our disposal here, but we're going to be facing some challenges uh, in the coming weeks here. Uh, joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Dr. Angela Rasmussen, uh, virologist at uh, Vaccine Infectious Disease Organization, University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Rasmussen, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program.
2: Thanks for having me back, Rob.
1: You know, and my goodness, I mean, it's it's remarkable. And, and I think, you know, everybody in, in the scientific and medical community that, uh, you know, are just working around the clock, it seems, to to track this, to understand this, to, to answer our questions, the amount of information that's come to light in the last few weeks, just in the last couple of days, it's truly remarkable, isn't it?
2: It is remarkable. It's also somewhat overwhelming. And unfortunately, yeah. it, it doesn't always feel this way because there is so much information coming out regarding Omicron, there's actually still quite a bit that we don't know. Um, so I'd, I'd caution everybody before we start talking about it to, to keep in mind um, that that we really only have very preliminary data right now, um, and more data will become available in the, the coming days and weeks, I'm afraid.
1: So let's look at, at what we know at this point. We, we know that this is, is uh, more transmissible. We know that is Probably mostly because uh, of its immune escape properties. So, in terms of of seeing a surge in cases, and we can talk about severe outcomes, but it, it seems unavoidable, doesn't it, that we're going to see a surge in cases?
2: I mean, I think that that that's pretty clear. That that's already been happening um, since the first cases were identified in Canada. You know, now we're really seeing uh, the the meteoric rise in cases in many of these places. Um, that we've seen in other parts of the world. So unfortunately, it does look like we are on that path to to have a fairly large um, Omicron surge.
1: And with that, I mean, even if this is more mild, which perhaps it appears to be, or at least we've got some more built-up uh, immunity that can protect against severe outcomes, even if it's a lower percentage of cases that, that are, are more severe, if we see a surge in cases, that, that's ultimately going to probably mean more pressure on, on the healthcare system, isn't
2: it? That's right. So this is why I'm trying to be very, very cautious about even saying that it may be more mild, because first of all, we don't know that. Um, the the study recently in South Africa that did show that in vaccinated people, uh, it was still, the vaccines were still very protective against infection, along with uh, hospitalization rates that haven't quite kept up with the surge in cases, um, may suggest, I think, that many people, especially those who have pre-existing immunity, won't be as likely to develop severe disease. But even again, if that percentage is smaller than for other variants, if we see a huge number of cases, if this wave ends up being really large, even that smaller percentage still turns into an absolute number of people that's quite large and certainly puts a lot of pressure on the healthcare system. And those of us in Saskatchewan and Alberta who have just you know, come out of these really devastating surges of the Delta variant really can't afford to, to have that pressure put back on the healthcare system again so soon, particularly if many other provinces in Canada uh, are, are also experiencing the same pressure on their healthcare systems.
1: Yeah, on the one hand, I mean it's so discouraging because at at least one thing that comes out of having a wave like that is is a lot of immunity from all of those infections. But those are Delta infections, and there's there's a real risk of of reinfection here. And and I think unfortunately, uh, that makes uh, us vulnerable. Even though we, as you say, we just have these big waves.
2: That's that's correct. Um, I mean, so the the thing about Omicron that is so scary is that it does have all of these mutations that increase your risk of reinfection or breakthrough infection after vaccination significantly. And while it is good news that uh, the vaccines are working the way that they're supposed to, even in cases where there is an infection, uh, people do seem to, to still enjoy substantial protection against severe disease. Um, that doesn't mean that it's 100% protection against severe disease. Uh, and a big wave is, is not going to be like, oh, there's a common cold going around. It's more going to, I think it it has the potential to be more like a really, really, really bad flu season where you do end up seeing a lot of people in the hospital and potentially more uh, than our healthcare systems are going to be able to manage.
1: Yeah. Well, in terms of where, you know, what's encouraging, I mean, even for those who, who have recovered from infection and, and may be vulnerable to reinfection, like, for example, hybrid immunity, right, having recovered and also being vaccinated, that conveys, from what we understand, really good protection that, that stands up even here. The data on booster shots, third doses, uh, the protection that conveys, that's really encouraging, too. So w- what about those potential advantages we have?
2: So I think that's that's a fantastic point and you know for for months now people have been asking me if they need to get vaccinated after having covid and I think this this really demonstrates the vaccination in people who've recovered from COVID already still has huge advantages and benefits for them. Similarly, getting a booster shot if you're eligible um, is something that, that's really easy to do and something that you really should do as soon as possible. Now, this is across Canada right now, available only to people over the age of 50 uh, who have been far enough out from their shots. But by province, it varies. So do find out if you are eligible for a booster in your province. And, uh, and consider getting one um, before the holiday season. I mean, it's already winter um, and people are spending yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot more time indoors as we start getting together with more people from outside of our households. That does increase the risk. So um, I really, really strongly encourage vaccination after infection or boosters uh, in people who are eligible for them to, to really make sure that you're as protected as possible.
1: It's interesting. I mean, you know, the conversation a month ago around boosters was about waning immunity, and I think it's now kind of about almost like insufficient immunity. We sort of had 6 months as as a benchmark that it might be a good idea to get a booster 6 months after your second dose, but given what we're up against, should we reconsider that? Would would shorter uh, a shorter interval make more sense at this point?
2: So I think it's really, really difficult to make that call because I don't think that we necessarily have a lot of data on that. Now, we do know from studies, uh, including studies here in Canada, where the uh, dosing interval was extended for many people between the first two shots. Um, that, that increased dosing intervals actually do enhance your, your ultimate uh, antibody response mm. and the durability of that response. So it may be that if you're giving three doses of the vaccine in too close a proximity with each other, that, that it doesn't have quite the return that you're hoping for. Um, but this is definitely an area that we need more data in uh, to, to figure out how to really fine tune these booster recommendations.
1: And as we move forward, I mean, you know, and obviously you're involved in vaccine work at the University of Saskatchewan at, at Vito. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot right now that's going on in terms of developing new vaccines and, and different vaccines. Uh, look, we know the boosters are, are effective and the data is encouraging on that. Uh, decisions are going to be made, obviously, at some point about whether we need more tailored uh, vaccines, depending on, on what, um, you know, what variants or strains are, are prevailing, uh, whether we get a, a better boost or better you know, immunity from different platforms or combining different kinds of vaccines. Where where are we at on, you know, making those kinds of determinations?
2: Well, this is a really tricky question to get to the bottom of because, especially when you're talking about mixing different vaccines, there aren't necessarily a lot of clinical trials that are designed to do this because manufacturers typically are not going to, to want to do a trial in which they are combining their product with a competitor's product. So a lot of that data we have to get from observational studies. And we have gotten some of that. And in fact, NASI uh, and Public Health Agency of Canada have made decisions based on those type of studies. For example, mixing and matching vaccines uh, was based on studies that had been conducted by researchers in Europe uh, and in the UK. Um, and now, of course, there's, there's more of that data that's been coming out from Canada and the U.S. and elsewhere. So sometimes, you know, we, we have to rely on the data that we can collect from the real world rather than looking for a clinical trial to solve uh, these these problems. But in terms of tailored vaccinations, uh, you know, there, there are um, all the major va- vaccine manufacturers are developing variant-specific boosters um, that, that may be used. And there is some data on that that was actually generated earlier this year with regards to the beta variant, um, which previously was the most immune evasive variant that was there. And good news there is that uh, a shot of original recipe, Moderna, a booster basically, or a beta specific booster, um, provided basically the same protection against the beta variant. We don't know if that's true for Omicron yet, but of course uh, these these vaccine manufacturers are testing their own vaccines to see if we need a, a a variant-specific booster. Um, now, down the road, uh, a number of countries, including Canada, have made investments in developing more universal vaccines. So, vaccines that would protect against multiple um, SARS-like coronaviruses, for example, or multiple influenza viruses. And this has been something that's really uh, increasing in interest in terms of research funding and the direction we should be going in. Because it would be a lot easier if you could just get one vaccine and be protected against a whole variety of viruses rather than having to get specific boosters all the time.
1: Yeah. Well, one other thing, too, and I mean, regarding antivirals, and I know there's some maybe skepticism, I guess, or apprehension, caution. So I don't know how to describe it around Merck and some of the questions around it. its uh, antiviral. But we did see some pretty encouraging results today from Pfizer. Uh, around their antiviral pills, so you know, is is there a potential for this to be a, a real tool, maybe even a real game changer, perhaps?
2: I mean, certainly, you know, the more tools we can put in our toolbox for for treating SARS coronavirus two or COVID, um, the better. You know, I'm a little bit skeptical and I think you just alluded to what the real problem is here. And that is that we're not actually seeing data on these drugs until they're being uh, presented uh, for the regulatory agencies to authorize or not. Um, That was what happened with Merck. Basically, they released preliminary trial data um, in a press release without providing the actual data for people to examine. And then when they, of course, submitted it to the US FDA, it barely squeaked by getting authorization because that full data package certainly did not agree with the the rosy preliminary data picture they painted. Hopefully that's not the case with this drug from Pfizer. It appears that at least according to Pfizer's analysis, um, the full trial data is consistent with their findings and their their preliminary analysis, which is that their drug, Paxlovid provides uh, 90% reduction in hospitalization uh, for people who take it. Now that's great news if it's true, but I really wish that Pfizer would have shared the actual data rather than just an announcement that this is what the data showed. Um, it makes it very difficult to actually evaluate how true these claims are uh, when, when they're coming out um, if we just rely on the manufacturer's press departments to, to fill us in. Yeah.
1: Well, we'll leave it there much more in the work uh, being done at Vito, V I D O V-I-D-O.org. Dr. Rasmussen, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate the insight.
2: Really my pleasure, Rob. Take care.
1: All the best. You as well. Uh, Dr. Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at the University of Saskatchewan with, the, uh, uh, with Vito, as it's known, Vito.org. Uh So they're doing some really interesting uh, vaccination work at the University of Saskatchewan, and, uh, and that's good, right? So, I mean, I think more of that's going to be needed. Anyway, so there's kind of an overview of where things stand, what we know, what we still don't know uh, about this variant and and what the challenges are that that lie ahead. I'm going to have a conversation at the top in this hour about the state of free speech in Canada, both in terms of what the courts have said, what our laws have said, how Canadians feel about it, where the pressures are coming from when it comes to to the limits uh, of free speech and our free speech rights. Do Canadians still value this freedom? I think there are some important issues here. And obviously, look, I mean, you know, the principle remains the same. When we look back at some of the landmark cases around free speech, uh, you know, there was the Taylor case in 1990. It it is in many ways a different world today with social media and and all of that. Uh, This is all explored in an interesting new book. It's called Dilemmas of Free Expression edited by Emmett McFarlane, who is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Waterloo and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor McFarlane, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the
3: program. Thank you for having me. Uh,
1: What about that point? You know, we had the Taylor case in 1990, and that was a pretty big one, you know, with with regard to free speech and the limits of free speech in Canada. It feels like, you know, 30 years later, the, the world's a very different place. But have these issues changed much at all?
3: have and some of them haven't I think you know a lot of the the core justifications for valuing and even privileging free expression as a value in democratic society haven't changed much but some of the challenges um, that we face that relate to free speech certainly have and the advent of the Internet and social media is certainly one of those where we have seen really, I think an increasing proportion of our population, not just in Canada, but across democracies, um, become increasingly susceptible to things like misinformation and disinformation and conspiracy theories. Um, The internet allows things like hate speech to pervade in a much more common way than, than it did previously. Um, we also have debates over free speech that, in in the last ten years, have become more polarized along ideological lines. Uh, we see younger generations. At least some evidence that younger generations are more willing to accept censorship uh, and deplatforming as tools to combat some of these dangers. Um, and we have a federal government that. Um, is uh, seeking to regulate social media in ways that I think have implications for free expression uh, to deal with some of these challenges as well. Um, so it is, yeah, it's a complex mixture of old debates and, and new issues that I think uh, pre- present some serious challenges for us.
1: Yeah, and it's an interesting way to frame it. I mean, you know, part of the, the challenge in Canada, and, and we've often heard it when these debates come up, that, look, we're not as absolutist on this as the United States. Uh, you know, the First Amendment is is much clearer in, in our charter or constitution. Although we recognize this as, as an incredibly important principle, we sort of give ourselves a little more constitutional leeway in, in putting some some parameters around that. So how does that affect Canadians' perception of this? Is there still a notion maybe that, you know, free speech is more of a an American thing?
3: I, I mean, I sometimes think we, we very unhelpfully bring in kind of the American discourse, um, and certainly from the legal perspective, the First Amendment uh, uh, certainly applies in a slightly different way than than our own charter provisions do. Our courts have been a little more deferential to governments that seek to place limits on free expression in, in a variety of contexts. But those, I mean, in some ways, those differences are kind of marginal, and the... You know, the real challenge is, is this broader discourse around free speech where um, I do sometimes worry that uh, it is in Canada sometimes dismissed as uh, more of an American value um, or it's becoming viewed by some um, as more of a right-wing va- value because a lot right. of the controversies we see in the media around free speech often have to do with Controversial speakers being being deplatformed at university campuses, um, or outspoken figures like Jordan Peterson, um, kind of taking on the mantle of a free free speech warrior uh, because he has faced attempts at censorship, and and it's resulted in this ideological fight where. Um, you have kind of right-wing defenders of free speech, uh, but really only defending it in particular contexts, and some people on the, the left um, who just don't see these as, as free speech issues at all and who are dismissive of it in light of the concerns over equality um, and diversity and i don't think that debate has been very helpful whatsoever i think i think neither side of the of the the ideological divide does well when it stops to think about free speech as a value to defend even when you disagree with the person who happens to be speaking which used to be the core liberal democratic approach to free speech um and and this is worrying it's worrying because um, not just because of the challenges we face with electoral integrity or, or or misinformation when fighting the pandemic or climate change, but it's actually destructive in a, a, in a democratic sense because it 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 means that we need to be all the more concerned about giving anyone the authority to censor or to to punish unpopular discourse. And the American example is is actually key to this because look at what's happening in the US right now as state after state brings in bans against the teaching of slavery and its its legacy for modern politics, against the teaching of critical race theory. Um, None of these laws have any chance under the First Amendment, but government after government is passing them in defiance of the most basic free speech principles that we hold dear. So the U.S. might be upheld as this paragon of free speech, but in practice it is anything but.
1: Yeah. Well, it's back to the point, and you alluded to it. I mean, you know, it feels like you know everyone hates cancel culture until they find that, that thing they want to cancel, that it's, it's a lot easier to be passionate about free speech when somebody you like or sympathize with or agree with is, is kind of the target of, of censorship
3: exactly and this is i mean this is the problem right and so i think we have we have not only this polarization and and no one seems willing to defend free expression when it's something they they actually don't agree with which is precisely when we need free speech as a right right it's it's, it's the, the unpopular speech that is going to be threatened um, if, if, if all speech was popular we wouldn't need free speech at, at all as a value right um, But the other thing we're getting wrong is that we're artificially pitting free expression against other values like equality, like diversity, like social justice. Uh, you need free expression for all of those things and when we artificially pit those two things against each other, um, it's not only bad for, for debates about so, when limits on free expression are appropriate, and sometimes, sometimes they are, uh, if you can demonstrate that there's harm involved, um, but also about the substantive outcomes of this, because I, I do sometimes worry we are on a bit of a slippery slope, where um, if we're willing to accept censorship in certain contexts, that can very quickly turn, be turned around against you. Um, and I'm not sure either side of the ideological divide is doing us any favors at this point.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. But I mean, you also mentioned something earlier where it feels like maybe younger Canadians or younger generations, um, you know, there's almost more of a willingness to accept some some degree of censorship because, yeah, censorship is bad, but hate speech is worse, or misinformation is worse, or you know, obstacles to social progress. Are, you know, that that's that's the worst thing. I mean, how do you? How do you respond to that? What do you say? I mean, obviously, you you know, you teach young people at the University of Waterloo. What do you say to them about this point?
3: Yeah, I mean, so some of the evidence we have for this is based on just public opinion polling and surveys. Mm -hmm. And the survey questions sometimes don't lend themselves to a lot of nuance, right? So students get, get literally asked, do you want a free campus or do you want a safe campus? As if those are... Are, are mutually exclusive categories, and you have to choose between one or the other. And, and so we do see signs that, you know, students students might be more willing to emphasize safety on campus than, than freedom on campus. Um, but I don't know that if that tells us a whole lot about their, their real attitudes. Um, where, where I'm concerned is that we see really... Um, an elasticity in the the use of harm or the invocation of violence when talking about the spoken word so it is becoming all too common for people to label hateful speech so speech that may not even rise to the level of illegal hate speech but hateful or odious words that don't even incite violence or don't call for any type of discriminatory action but to still label that speech as violence um and that that's a problem because it it completely changes the framing of 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 what um what might be happening on the ground and it's hard to refute an invocation of harm that really rests on your own subjective, emotional feelings in response to to those messages. Um, and I don't know that, that that's a very helpful lens for approaching these issues. And it's not to say that hateful speech can't be harmful, um, because in many ways it can. Words are powerful. But I think we need to be careful about how we assess when those harms are severe enough to, to impose limits on, on speech because limits on speech can be themselves very harmful and they can be harmful for the, the groups that are uh, historically and, and contemporarily targeted by hate speech.
1: Yeah. Well, very timely and important book. Uh, it's called Dilemmas of Free, Expe- uh, Dilemmas of free Expression. Uh, a number of different contributors exploring this debate from, from all sides, uh, including yourself, Emmett McFarlane. Thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: All the best. Uh, that is Emmett McFarlane. He is the editor of the book Dilemmas of Free Expression, uh, one of the many contributors as well, looking at the debate around free speech and limits on free speech uh, from all kinds of different perspectives. But I want to get into the debate around where liquor is sold in Alberta or where it should be sold. And there have been suggestions over the years about, you know, should we open it up? Should convenience stores sell alcohol A grocery store sell alcohol? I mean, obviously, I guess it was almost 30 years ago. We made some pretty sweeping changes in Alberta in terms of how liquor is sold. And I think more or less that that change worked and people liked the status quo. There was a lot of choice in Alberta. There's a lot of convenience in Alberta pretty easy to find a liquor store, it's pretty easy to shop around. But it is the exclusive domain, more or less, of, of liquor stores. We got an interesting situation in Edmonton where a 7-Eleven in North Edmonton is selling alcohol. And not because the Alberta government has suddenly decided that convenience stores should be able to sell alcohol. It's kind of an odd situation. The 7-Eleven applied for and received a Class A Miners Allowed Liquor License. So they're selling alcohol in the store. You can buy it and and leave with it, or you can buy it and sit down and drink it. So how did this happen? What what does it mean to Alberta's status quo? Joining us for some thoughts is Yvonne Martinez, president of the Alberta Liquor Stores Association. Yvonne, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: Um, So what's your understanding of of how this happened or or why this particular convenience store is now suddenly selling alcohol?
4: Yeah, I think you made a really good point, uh, Rob. There's a loophole that 7-Eleven was able to uh, get so that they could get that A-minor's license and be able to sell liquor. At the beginning of the pandemic, the Alberta government made a change that allowed restaurants to sell liquor without food. And that was to assist them in while the entire province was shut down so that they could at least survive or at least make it to the very end. Right. Um, and I'm not quite sure that those... and i got to tell you, the entire industry, including liquor stores, we supported that. We still do. We We know how hard restaurants have been hit. We don't believe that the bylaw was meant for gas stations and convenience stores, that all they have to do is put in, you know, Three little tables and chairs in a cool, and they can call themselves a restaurant. To me and to our members, it's it's very it just makes no sense. Uh, It creates a lot of issues around social responsibility. Um, They're close to schools. Minors usually convene in the store. They don't have a dedicated person that works there. Up the cooler that is, uh, in, you know, in front of the store, and you mm-hmm. can see through. You also have people at risk that hang out at 7-eleven so if somebody's peddling for for some money and they get now what five bucks they can go in there and drink which is a bit concerning i think um for for the majority of society um and so now uh instead of you know being able to just buy a Slurpee, you can now go and buy a Slurpee and vodka and uh, a lot of parents are very concerned about this
1: so it's because then they added the, the tables. So in order for them to get this license, they needed to, to have the tables there then. Is that correct?
4: Uh, my understanding is that all you have to do is to put in three tables, six chairs, a cooler, and they can call themselves a restaurant. Okay. I i do have to say that the majority of restaurants have to have their first income come from food service. I don't believe that a gas station, a convenience store can say that they're going to make more money through food service than gas or tobacco products or bingo products.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, they do sell food at Seven Eleven. 11 I mean, I'll mm-hmm. give them that, but they they sell a lot of other things. So uh, as far as you're aware, then this is the first convenience store to, to do this
4: yeah and they've been trying for the last 10 years rob and the government has been really good at keeping it at bay they understand the issues around social responsibility but it also uh it it, they also understand the effect that it's going to have on independent mom and pop operators i think a lot of people think um you know liquor stores are making a lot of money. And for some, yes, that is the case. But the average small business owner that operates as well, their margins are extremely tight. And even taking away as little as half a percentage of their actual um, budget and income is going to make a difference. And these people have invested hundreds of thousands of dollars to open up their uh liquor stores and the money stays in the community they hire locally um where Seven Eleven, the only investment they had to do was move a few shelves around and and uh and put a cooler in there and somehow it just doesn't make sense to us do you
1: think this is the start of of a slippery slope here are we likely to see more of this
4: well, and I think that that is a fear that this sets precedent. And um, I, I think, uh, you know, when we poll people in Alberta, they tell us that they don't want gas stations to carry liquor. They don't want convenience stores to carry liquor, and so we're hoping that the government will um rethink how the uh, regulation change they made can be applied um so that actual restaurants have the opportunity to take advantage of it, um, but it doesn't allow for, you know, gas stations to, to be able to go through that loophole and get their license that way. In but essence, we, 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 practice, yeah. yeah. In essence, there are liquor stores without having to follow any liquor store um, rules or regulations.
1: Well, and I think that's something the province is going to have to address. I'd agree with that. I mean, what do you say to people who have been, you know, we've all been to to other jurisdictions, U.S. states, uh, for example, where alcohol is sold in convenience stores and gas stations and grocery stores. What is is the chief argument against that, that model here?
4: Um, I think I think the biggest one is the fact that you're there for holidays, you're there for maybe a week, you go in there once or twice and you come home. What you don't get to see are the statistics of the crime um, that happens around those facilities that do sell both food and liquor, uh, thefts, um, there's a lot of um, uh, robberies, and uh, people just don't understand that minors are getting access to alcohol. So not only can they now go and get a Slurpee, they can now go and get a Slurpee with vodka in it and maybe drive. And that to us is huge, a huge concern.
1: What's your sense of how Albertans feel about our status quo? The the model we have, the model that's been established in Alberta over the last 30 years, is it working? Do Albertans seem to like it?
4: i got to tell you, we poll every year. And our province is one of the best in terms of liquor retailing in all of Canada. People are satisfied. We're talking 90% of the people we pull say, yeah, this is working well, please keep it. especially moms say we don't want this at truck stops and gas stations Um, and so it it just it doesn't make any sense Rob. In Edmonton alone for every one 7-Eleven you have five liquor stores that are either right next to it right in the same complex across the road kitty corner. There's no lack of access of alcohol that is sold responsibly.
1: All right. So I I guess it falls to the province now, doesn't it, to decide whether to close this loophole or or allow this to continue?
4: Yeah, we we would hope the government would just reconsider how they're implementing this uh, new regulation, which, again, was meant for legitimate restaurants um, and not gas stations. And there's a loophole that they're taking uh, advantage of. And yeah, pretty slope. the you might just have now every single gas station uh, selling liquor. And I'm not quite sure that this is what Albertans want.
1: All right. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. Yvonne, appreciate your perspective on this. Thanks for joining us here.
4: You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All the
1: best. Here's, uh, that is Yvonne Martinez, president of the Alberta Liquor Stores Association, which obviously represents liquor stores. And so for the moment, for the most part, almost exclusively, I guess you could say, liquor stores are the ones that, that sell alcohol in Alberta, the kind of alcohol you buy and, and bring home. And as she points out, the change that was made to allow restaurants to to sell alcohol, to allow for takeout of alcohol, it was that change that allowed this 7-Eleven to say, hey, we'll do that too. So they put in some tables and they got this license. Now they say, look, our, the people who work here have to do the pro-serve training, uh, the cooler where the liquors kept is locked. A staff member has to open it. So it's not a crazy free-for-all. But it does represent a potential big change to the status quo in Alberta. How do people feel about that? I, I think for the most part, if you go province to province, Alberta's got it right or closest to right when it comes to liquor retail. But would it be the worst thing in the world if convenience stores sold alcohol too? It would all sort itself out in the end. I mean, obviously Albertans buy a certain amount of alcohol every year. So if we're buying it more from convenience stores, then sure, some liquor stores will will suffer. So with more convenience stores selling it, there will probably be fewer liquor stores. But at the end of the day, I guess if people are able to get what they want, maybe that's what matters most. Welcome back. Uh, So back in December of 2017, four years ago, Barry Sherman, businessman, philanthropist, billionaire, CEO of Apotex Incorporated, along with his wife, Honey, were murdered in a pretty shocking crime in Toronto. And still to this day, the case remains unsolved. Obviously, all sorts of questions arise when you've got a situation like this, someone this prominent, this high profile, unusual circumstances. So just the day before the fourth anniversary of the murders, Toronto police today provided an update and have what they think is a suspect. More here from Global's Sandy Salerno.
2: Four years after the couple was found murdered inside their North York mansion, police have yet to make an arrest in the case. But for the first time since this investigation began, they are using the word suspect when describing one individual captured on surveillance video they've yet to identify.
0: The timing of this individual's appearance is in line with when we believe the murders Took place. Based on this evidence, we're classifying this individual as a suspect.
2: Detective Sergeant Brandon Price says there may be a legitimate reason as to why this person was seen walking in front of the Sherman's home the night of the murders, and they're hoping someone will recognize him.
0: It is our hope that someone will come forward with a name when they recognize the individual's walk, the way in which they kick up their right foot with every step.
2: Price says they have several videos of this person they called a the suspect today, but they only released one of them because it's the best quality. Sandy Salerno, Global News.
1: Okay, well, joining us to talk more about these developments and about the many questions in this case is someone who has covered it extensively. He is uh, the author of the book The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. Uh, Also chief investigative reporter with the Toronto Star, Kevin Donovan, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Kevin, thanks so much for making some time for us. I imagine a pretty interesting and crazy day for you, but uh, welcome to the program.
5: Yeah, always great to talk to you out there and uh, hope the weather is uh, treating you well.
1: Well, not so much. (laughs) We'll talk about that. Let's talk about this case, because it is so I mean, it's so tragic, so bizarre, so mysterious, uh, all of these things. But so here we now are four years after the fact, and police are using the word suspect. So in, in your view, and having covered this case extensively, how significant a development is this?
5: Well, I'm still a bit mystified by this. This was an image uh, of this uh, oddly gated individual uh, the police caught four years ago. They caught the image, and they've been trying to figure out who this person is. Probably should have come out to the media and the public, more importantly, a lot sooner. Uh, I don't think it is that significant, except that uh, they have tried really hard to identify this individual and they can't place the person. The person is is walking around this neighborhood on a snowy night and where he's actually recorded is some distance from the Sherman home. And I I shouldn't say he because the police won't say if it's a man or woman. To me it looks like a man. So. what I find suspicious is that they've been unable to find out who this person is by, by using software to identify a person by neighborhood canvas. Uh, so, you know, there's lots of reasons why people could be walking around a neighborhood late at night. Uh, I've been writing about car thefts lately, and lots of people are out stealing cars at night. But the police seem very determined uh, when they call uh, this individual a suspect.
1: Now the information they released today, and you know the the Toronto Star has been part of this push, right? Because th- this has all been sealed information. Police have, have been sitting on this for for a very long time. So why wasn't any of this released previously?
5: Yeah, well, I've been trying for four years to get information unsealed. Uh, I had some success a year ago. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure this image is part of of uh, of, of a search warrant that is sealed but there's lots of other information that, that is still sealed. I, I think that police uh, were thinking that they'd be able to identify the person on their own and realize they couldn't. I think there's there's some pressure on them. It's been four years uh, to do something to, to get this back in, in the public focus, and uh, that, that may be why they've come out with this. But they were very clear that... That this person what they describe is they've collected a number of video images uh of all sorts of people they've excluded everybody uh there is this one individual who walks around the neighborhood at roughly the time of the murders which is the late evening of uh the wednesday december 13th the person walks around they don't know who the person is this video that if you've seen it on uh, on our website or anybody else's website uh, the person is actually walking away from the Sherman home, and the person is actually some distance away uh, a number of streets away uh, could be indicative of a person who knows the area could be indicative of a person who doesn 't know the area person 's not walking a dog person's on their own I, I, I do understand that it 's a bit suspicious
1: yeah I mean it is at some level I mean you know the timing of, of you know when this video was taken is significant, but you know, walking around a neighborhood isn't, isn't a crime. You know, there's no, he's not carrying a weapon. There's no blood trail. Like he's not looking over his shoulder. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like they're, they're pinning a lot on, on this. it just, it doesn't feel like it, it matches that.
5: Yeah. And I, I think your assessment is, is correct. Uh, good for you to pick out, not looking over the person's shoulder. Uh, person seems to be walking with some purpose. They've, spend a bit of time today talking about the person's gait, the way the person is walking. Uh, since the, the video came out, I've had a couple of doctors, uh, uh, general practitioners and others reach out to me and say what this person is doing is called a drop foot, uh, which is a apparently neurological condition, uh, not a serious one, but it's something where, where we compensate with, uh, with one foot, in this case the right foot, and, and the foot kicks back. Um, more and the right foot kicks back more than the left foot does and uh, so the doctors that contacted me said shouldn't the police have, have, uh, have used that, given that information out because that might jog uh, some memories. Uh, it, it's a mystery and I, I have a hunch that within a couple of days they're going to figure out who this person was and, and it's not going to be uh, the murder, but, but I could be wrong.
1: Well, but I mean, how does this, does it affect the perception at all, do you think, that you know, the, the Toronto police have been slow uh, with regard to this case, and maybe even to some extent inept when it comes to, to this case? Is it, did they dissuade people of that notion at all today?
5: No, they, they didn't. Well, at one point, uh, the detective did mention that when they don't give updates, people think they're not doing anything. The only updates that have come uh, at all in this case in the last four years are almost the only ones. I mean, from, from our going to court to try and, and get information. And in doing so, we get this update every once in a while on on what they're doing, what search warrants that they're doing, and, and how many more people they've interviewed, which is very few, actually, in the last three years. Um, and so I, I think there's a little bit of this wanting to get put something out there to say we're still trying. And and all I would say, and this is the same for all murders, no matter whether they're of the... Of, um, uh, No matter who was murdered, that police should be a little bit more open and transparent as the investigation goes on and and ask for help more than they're doing. I think four years is is too long. I think they could have put this out earlier and, and probably saved themselves a lot of time and effort.
1: One of the reasons why I mean people are so fascinated with this case is just all of the intrigue around it. Right here, you have you know a billionaire couple, very prominent uh, in in the corporate landscape, in particular the pharmaceutical landscape in this country, uh, murdered under very unusual circumstances, and it doesn't appear to be you know a crime motivated by money. It doesn't necessarily appear to be a crime motivated by any kind of corporate rivalry, revenge sort of element. I mean, it just. It just seems so bizarre, even the way they were found in the home. all of it is just so unusual. And here we are four years later, and you know the police are putting out this video, of someone walking through a neighborhood instead of advancing in any kind of a concrete narrative about what happened. It just seems so unusual. It feels so unsolvable almost at this point.
5: yes, it does. I mean, there's other I mean I've been doing this for quite a few years. There have been other cases over the years that that have not been solved for a decade or more. Sometimes that happens uh, by uh, a person coming in off the street or maybe a person making a jailhouse confession that they know some information. I think that's how this one's going to be solved personally. Um, That's just my opinion.
1: Well, and what of the uh, Sherman fortune in the meantime? I know there was an update earlier this year, and I think you had a story earlier this year about you know the the battle over the uh, you know the ten billion dollar family fortune where Where do things stand on, on that side?
5: Yeah, great question uh, well the, the 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 family is not getting along well. There's three sisters and a son who inherit uh, the, the whole estate. Uh, the son is not uh, talking to his sisters, or more likely his sisters are not talking to him. Uh, there's all sorts of, of, uh, of criticisms and complaints going back and forth. Uh, there's an aunt who feels like she's being uh, kicked out of the family. That's uh, Honey's sister. The uh, the the company, Apotex, the, the business press occasionally uh, floats a story saying that they are for sale. One of the issues with with Barry Sherman's company, in fact, Barry, who is brilliant, is not not alive to run it anymore is that they've got a lot of lawsuits against them. Uh, some of them are, are, are criminal uh, allegations in the United States related to price-fixing by some states and, and by uh, the U.S. government. The U.S. government has recently been settled. They, they paid about $100 million in the U.S. to settle uh, claims that they were price-fixing with other generic companies. So, so I, I feel that they have to clear all those up. Uh, and there's there's more waiting in the wings before they can sell the company the, the The fortunes of the Sherman family are tied up at Apotex. There's hundreds of millions in various real estate uh, endeavors that Barry had going out there, but the main asset is that company Apotex, which which has been very uh, involved in, in providing uh, you know low-cost generic drugs in Canada and around the world so uh, to get to realize their their billions they need to uh, to sell that company
1: well fascinating story and uh, on it goes much more in today's developments at the starcom and uh, of course we mentioned your book the billionaire murders Kevin thanks so much for making some time for us here today appreciate it
5: thanks for having me on
1: all the best. That's Kevin Donovan, chief investigative journalist, uh, the Toronto Star, the author of the book, The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman, which remained perhaps just as mysterious four years after the fact that they did on that uh, December day in 2017. Who killed these two and why? I mean, that's the obvious uh, question here. We just don't know the answer. Uh, and it was interesting, too, that police referred to this individual on this video as a suspect, not a person of interest but a suspect let me just play for you uh this was uh, detective sergeant brandon price who was asked about that
5: i'm just uh wondering why um
1: i i believe this is the first time the term suspect is being used in this investigation and why uh you you said this person could potentially be eliminated uh so why uh they're a suspect versus a person of interest i was wondering if you could elaborate on that
0: sure so the uh that's a good question so This footage is not the only footage of this individual that we have. We have uh, done an exhaustive uh, video canvas uh, of the whole area, and we have, um, based on the timing of when we understand, when we believe the murders took place, we have this individual coming into a very defined area uh, around the uh, Sherman's household, and remaining in that area for a period and then leaving from that area, so we have been unable to um, identify what purpose that person had to be within that defined area, um, and therefore, and the timing is uh, is in line with our uh, belief as to when this uh, these murders took place, and so that is why we classify this individual as a suspect.